0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Dr. Tim Ball. He is a climatologist and he is one of the authors of the book Slaying the Sky Dragon. We've done many shows together about all different aspects of climate and weather. I was in a conversation with Dr. Ball about trade agreements and he started to explain to me that trade agreements are connected with water control, the actual control of water rights from the United States and Canada. And he started to talk about NAFTA and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do a segment about this, even though normally I don't cover geopolitical issues per se because I don't really want to polarize the public. But legal trade agreements are of deep interest to me. We have covered the laws. We're going to talk about the North American Free Trade Agreement, because I don't understand it, really. I've never read that agreement, but I want to learn about it. And I want you all to give a warm welcome to Dr. Tim Ball.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Kim, and good to talk with you again.
0: I think the first thing I want you to bring together for us is... What is NAFTA? Why was it created? What does it have to do with Canada and the United States of America?
1: Well, NAFTA, as you said, stands for the North American Free Trade Agreement, and, and of course it's just one of many trade agreements around the world, but it's certainly one of the largest. And it is an attempt to combine trade between the three countries that occupy the North American continent, uh, namely Mexico, uh, United States, and Canada. It's presented as the idea that there are benefits for all involved in in trade agreements. And it's always been promoted, I should say, by people like John Kennedy, for example, that if people are trading with each other, they're less likely to be fighting with each other. So trade became, if you want a weapon of peace... And the NAFTA is part of a long-term concept of what is called continentalism. That is, that there are three countries occupying this continent, but they have common interests. And that one of the ways that this could be achieved is through the trade agreement. And it's much like the uh, European community began initially as a European economic community, a trade community and then of course supposedly was going to evolve beyond that. It's evolving beyond the trade agreement that is of concern to a lot of people because of sovereignty and national identity. The difficulty with trade agreements is that everybody's got their own agenda and each country that's involved in NAFTA, such as Canada, US and Mexico, what you have to do when you get into any agreement is decide, am I going to get more out of it than I'm going to have to surrender? Because you're always going to have to surrender something. The question is, what are you surrendering in terms, for example, of sovereignty or control of resources within your own country? These are some of the concerns about NAFTA.
0: The audience is going to want to know, why are you fit to discuss this as a climatologist?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Of course, it's always the question I'm asked uh, when I start to talk about climate. How are you qualified to talk about climate? And, of course, the answer is I have a Ph.D. in climatology. I also was in a department of geography because when I got my climatology degree, climate was a very obscure area that crossed a lot of disciplines, Particularly my interest in historical climate, the reconstruction of climates. So I also taught some geography courses. But in studying climate, I learned a couple of things. One is that drought, And precipitation, by the way, is the one factor that's being ignored in the climate studies. It's all very well to say, well, the temperature might go up or down, but the real issue in the short term and medium term for most people is what's the precipitation going to do? And I learned that droughts have an enormous impact on human history. For example, in the year 2000, they asked 20 of the world's top climatologists to list the 20 worst climate disasters of the 20th century. And 11 of them that they listed were droughts. And if you think about the impact on the U.S., the 1930s drought, for example. So I got interested in drought. That then led me, as a historical climatologist, to look at the impact of climate and weather on human history. You don't look at that for very long before you start to realize that it is a very important dictator, if you want, of history. For example, you really don't understand the fur trade in North America as a trade if you don't understand how cold it was around the world in the 17th and 18th century. And that was a major precipitant of the fur trade, the demand for furs and warmer clothing amongst the aristocracy, the wealthy, and, of course, they're the ones that drive these things, in Europe. From that, I started teaching a water resources course, which, of course, got me into the politics and distribution of water and the issue of water, which I happen to think, by the way, is the most important resource, and we'll talk about that with regard to NAFTA. And as Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, you can live without love, but you can't live without water. Indeed, indeed. It will be a precipitant of great conflict around the world, fights over water.
0: I think it already is, Tim. There are even some people who think that we went into Libya for the water rights there, because Gaddafi owned this huge, huge water resource.
1: In light of that, there was a lovely documentary back in the 70s called the Water More Precious Than Oil. I mentioned that in the context of Libya. Gaddafi, of course, spent millions, billions on water projects trying to make the desert bloom. And in fact, it led to a very interesting story because they put in pumps to pump water from an aquifer. An aquifer is a large body of water stored in the rocks under the ground. It's below the water table, from the water table down. Some of the largest aquifers in the world are under the Sahara Desert, put there during the last ice age when it was a very wet region. That means that water's been in the ground for 10,000 years or more. And, of course, if you start pumping it out faster than it can be replaced, then eventually that water source will drain. Now, that's been an issue. uh, Your listeners will know about the Ogallala Aquifer that runs down the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains in the United States and Canada. And we'll talk about that later with regard to NAFTA. But anyway, Gaddafi started pumping that water out. And people need to understand, he put in 300-horsepower water pumps. That's a huge, huge water pump. When he opened one of the projects of irrigation in the desert with this pumping, a British reporter said to him, Mr. Gaddafi, you know, at the rate you're pumping, in 30 years the water will be all gone. What do you have to say about that? And Gaddafi said, probably one of the most honest political comments ever, he said, I'll be gone too. (laughs) In other words, I'm doing this for my political gain, and I don't care what the consequences are. And, of course, that's the issue with with so much of what we do. The short-term gain, maybe, but what's the long-term pain? And if you don't accommodate to that, then you've got difficulties. And, of course, you think about that with regard to everything related to the environmental movement, which was the paradigm that came in in the 1960s.
0: With regard to owning water resources, talk about the part of NAFTA that you feel is detrimental to humanity and water.
1: First of all, let's put it in this context in that we already had 80% free trade between Canada and the United States.
0: How do you know that?
1: That was known at the time. It was talked about by the negotiators. And people that were asking questions about NAFTA that didn't like the idea were saying, well, what are you going to negotiate? Well, who were the negotiators? That's part of the story, because the two negotiators on the Canadian side was a fellow by the name of Simon Reisman. His whole career was involved in water and water projects, particularly one project called the Grand Canal Scheme. And this was a project that was to put a dam across James Bay where it spills into Hudson Bay. It's brackish water. It's got a fairly high content of fresh water in it. But if you dump the brackish water out, it would then fill up with fresh water from the rivers that flow into it. You would then pump that water south through Lake Huron into Lake Michigan and through the Chicago River out to the American Midwest. Reisman was working as a consultant to the company that was working on that project and he had said I could guarantee free trade with the Americans if we give them access to our water and that was in the media at the time when people were discussing the downsides of the whole agreement and on the other side of the table was a fellow by the name of Paul Morphy, M-O-R-P-H-Y. He sadly is now dead. He died of a brain tumor as a young man, unfortunately. But the Americans were smarter in their trade negotiation because Morphy was simply the person at the table. The person that was actually doing the negotiating from the American side was Clayton Yoiter, Y-E-U-T-T-E-R. Now, Yoiter had been the Secretary of Agriculture under Ronald Reagan, but he had done his doctoral thesis on the need for a continental water policy. Now, one of the things that I always used to tell my students, and I tell everybody now about, is that if you want to know what a person is going to focus their life on, read what they write when they're young. Most of them are telling you what they plan to do. All the question is is whether they can get in a position to implement it. The classic example, of course, in history is that if you'd read Mein Kampf when it was originally published, you knew exactly what Hitler planned to do. But what did we do? We banned the book. It's an absolutely classic example of why nothing should be banned. Everything should be out there, and people should go and read what these people are saying when they're young. I mean, in Canada, for example, we had a prime minister, Trudeau, who was editing a journal called Cite Libre, telling Canadians what he planned to do if he ever got to be prime minister of Canada, and by golly, he did it. In his doctoral thesis, Yoiter wrote about this need for a continental water policy. He got into the position to be able to negotiate the free trade, and, of course, saw this as an opportunity to implement a continental water policy. As we've already mentioned, there was already 80% free trade between Canada and the U.S. In fact, Kim, what was interesting was there was more free trade between Canada and the U.S., and there still is today, despite NAFTA, than there is between the Canadian provinces. There are great restrictions on trade within Canada, much greater than they are between Canada and the U.S.
0: And I want you to define free trade. What does it really mean?
1: It's rarely free. There's always some restrictions, and of course, theoretically, what it is is that there really is no border. There are no restrictions on trade across a border. This was the problems that they had with the European community. They brought in the free trade within the community, but then de Gaulle, who didn't like it, immediately set up all kinds of health and other restrictions. He brought in over 400 pieces of legislation of saying, for example, Danish butter. And the French farmers didn't want Danish butter coming in and competing with them. And so they, they said, oh, well, Danish butter's got to sit at the border for a year before we can allow it in. Oh, I'm sorry, we got no refrigeration to protect it. So there's many ways to skin the cat.
0: By the way, do you know, there's thousands of free trade zones around America. Oh, yes. And what they're being used for is to bring in people and groups from outside the United States of America and give them free access to do
1: whatever they want to do, basically. No restrictions. Well, this is the difficulty. How do you have freedom in one area of your relationship between nations and not allow freedom within others? I mean, one of the problems the European community is now experiencing is the freedom of movement and, you know, the inundation of people from Eastern Europe looking for better economic opportunities It sounds very nice and idealistic, but the realities are much, much more difficult to deal with. When you get into a free trade agreement, you have to consider what potential things you're going to sacrifice in order to get access to a resource or something that you need.
0: Now, you said to me when we were talking yesterday, I took some notes, but you said, you know, NAFTA is about water, and I never, ever thought about NAFTA as being about water resources. Why are you so sure about it?
1: Let's start out by saying that there is no water shortage. A lot of it is being artificially created or is created because of misuse of water or people wanting to live in areas where there isn't adequate water and uh, demanding that it be provided to them as a a human right. But inequitable distribution is one of the great problems. And in North America, Canada has about one-third of the world's fresh water. In the United States, you can draw a line down the middle of the continent, and apart from the northwest, the Oregon region, apart from that small area, a line down the middle separates less than 20 inches of rainfall to the west of the line and more than 20 inches to the east of the line. And by the way, that's a very important boundary line because it also separates completely different soil types because the rain creates the soil types and vegetation that can grow. And one of the things um, that I've always talked about with the U.S. was when Horace Greeley said, go west, young man, he didn't take into account that there wasn't any water out in the west. And of course, the people with the wagon trains going west, going through the deserts and surviving that horrible trek. And they went west. And of course, they get to California, supposed to be the land of milk and honey but it didn't have the water supply. And what's been going on since then is trying to get adequate water supply into Western North America. One of the ways that this can be done, of course, is by massive diversion schemes of water from Canada South. Prior to NAFTA, there were huge schemes. I mentioned one, the Grand Canal scheme of water from James Bay. There was another scheme that was being promoted called the Cooper Project, which was designed to divert water from Manitoba, the Great Lakes in in Manitoba, in the center of the continent, down through the Red River system into the uh, American Midwest, and that, by the way, was promoted by a former premier of the province of Manitoba by the name of Gary Fillman, and he did his master's thesis on that proposal as an engineer. But the largest continental scheme prior to NAFTA, and is still on the books, was something called NAWAPA, which is the North American Water and Power Alliance. And this was a scheme that was promoted by a Senator Moss of Utah, Frank Moss. It was designed to take water from the Yukon River and divert it south through the Rocky Mountain Trench, which would create a huge lake in British Columbia that would be about 700 miles long by 40 miles wide. That water would then be pumped into the Columbia River, I should say, and then into the Snake, and then into the Colorado, and down into California. And, and of course, Moss was arguing that without that kind of water, the western United States simply couldn't develop properly. The NWAPA plan, by the way, the engineering on it, was done by the Parsons Company out of Los Angeles.
0: Pasadena, yeah. Could we then say that the western United States doesn't have its own water?
1: It's a water deficit region. More water is taken up by plants or evaporation to space than is falling in rainfall on an annual basis and so it is a water deficit region. The Ogallala Aquifer that I talked about that runs down the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains was created again during the last ice age, and it runs right down into Texas, by the way. It is recharged, but it's recharged from the wet eastern side, not from a runoff from the Rocky Mountains. The southwest corner of the continent, from the line down the middle of the U.S. and from the Canadian border south, is essentially a water deficit region. Now, one of the ways we see that in history, by the way, and this is where my climate and historical research comes in, is that whenever there is drought, the 1930s drought, for example, the greatest impact was in Southern California and into Oklahoma and right through there, and you're seeing a bit of that now with the Texas drought. When you go back in history, for example, the great civilizations of the Southwest, the Hopi Indians, the Navajo, the Four Borders region, the rainfall was adequate for their corn crops and so on. Then it started to get dry. They started to do irrigation. And then it got so dry that the whole civilizations collapsed. The same thing was happening with the Maya in South America at the same time. Those people migrated out of there And it's a very interesting thing because amongst people of northern Canada the Dene people, there are a lot of Hopi and Navajo Indian words in their language that were transported by the people migrating at that time. The region is generally a deficit region that goes through periodic droughts. Now, every region goes through drought, but because it's already dry to start with, it becomes a bigger problem.
0: Okay, and I also want to ask you something. It seems to me now that just because there's an aquifer in a certain region doesn't mean that that region will have access to it. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it depends on the depth of the aquifer and, and of course, your ability to extract the water. In fact, groundwater is the biggest source of water for people around the world through wells. And, of course, where groundwater comes to the surface, we see it in the form of a lake or a river. The amount of water you can take out of an aquifer is limited by the rate at which it is recharged, Now, we talked earlier about the aquifers under the Sahara Desert, one of the largest in the western Sahara, where Libya is. It covers 700,000 square kilometers, but it's recharged from the Nile River and from the Tibesti mountain ranges and so on. The water flows through the rock a recharge rate of two inches a year. So if you take more than two inches out, the recharge rate, it doesn't replace it.
0: When you say recharge rate, I want you to explain that a little bit more clearly.
1: Okay. If you imagine that you have a well drilled into an aquifer, you can pump water out of that well. The level in the well will go down. Right. The rate at which the well recovers its level is determined by the rate at which the water moves through the rock into the well. That's clear. That's the recharge rate, okay? Okay, so
0: that's what you're talking right.
1: about. I and, call and that
0: can, the flow rate, but anyway. The flow rate,
1: yes, and it can vary enormously. I talk about the one under under uh, the Sahara is two inches a year, which is very slow. But you've got areas, say, in North Dakota, in that area, in the um, glacial rocks there, where the flow rate is equivalent to a small stream, you know, 200 and more cubic feet per second recharge rate. And you hear people talking about underground rivers or flows. That's partly what they're talking about. Now, there are underground rivers. Of course, you see the mammoth caves and limestone formations. But they're talking about the water flowing through the rock under the ground.
0: Well, let me also clarify why I asked you the question about the aquifer and who has access to it. Right. Because... I had heard a few years ago, I'm using this as an example, okay, that an oil well in Prudhoe Bay, which has enough oil to last 200 years, is not allowed to be used by anybody or any company in the United States. That oil is being sent to China. In that case, it's an oil example. But in this case, my question is similar. Is that happening with aquifers where an aquifer is found, and let's say the flow rate is better than two inches a year, But are they sequestered and then brought
1: to other countries? There are none that I know of. The only country in the world that I know of that is using aquifers to store water is Israel. Okay, And, of course, Israel, because of its strategic problems determined a long time ago that it couldn't rely on the flow of water into the Jordan River from Syria and Lebanon... And so it considers only that water that is from the Sea of Galilee or Lake Kinneret or Lake Tiberias, depending on what historic time period you want to talk about, <laughs> that's the only water that they can rely on. What they do is they extract water from their aquifers during the summer. And then during the winter, when they're, and we talked about deficit and surplus, in the winter when there's a surplus of water, they pump water down into the aquifer. They also pump primary-treated sewage water into the aquifer because once that water's in the ground, it becomes purified by passing through the rock. That's the only country that I know of that is making a deliberate and active use of, of aquifers. In most countries, what happens is you simply have the aquifer and you um, tap into it and either just let people take whatever they want, or you control by limiting the number of wells that are allowed and and the amount of water that people are allowed to take. Of course, during the drought of 88-89 in the western United States, which, by the way, meteorologically was worse than the 1930s drought, there was an argument that uh, the irrigation farmers on the eastern side of the Rockies were taking out too much water that was causing the Ogallala aquifer water table to drop. In fact, it was the drought that was causing the drop because the amount of water the farmers were taking out was negligible relative to the total quantity of water in it. But to get back to your oil example, one of the problems that you have is those aquifers don't respect national boundaries. Also, with oil, one of the problems they've had in the last several years is that they've developed the techniques of drilling down and then drilling sideways. So you could have a a land claim on the surface and say, well, I'm going to drill for oil there, and you could go down and then drill sideways into somebody else's oil reserve. Well, certainly that's a possibility with water. And so we get back into that problem of jurisdiction, the distribution of the resource who has control over the resource and that of course is what the whole NAFTA thing was about that basically what you were saying was that not only trade but resources in any of the countries had to be priced and shared equitably across the borders now uh, just to give you an example of where that becomes problematic is that in the city of Winnipeg, in the center of Canada, they pay about $2.10 for 1,000 gallons of water. Well, when you consider what you can get for a bottle of water in Phoenix, Arizona, and you consider that the average water bill in parts of Florida is $300 a month, You can see why, when I was appointed to uh, a water commission in Manitoba, I suggested to the minister that I would be far better off buying up old milk trucks, filling them with water, and trucking them down to Florida or to Phoenix, because I could fill it up for about 10 bucks and get $2 a gallon for it down in those locations. This is the difficulty. It's the distribution of the water, but it's also, in terms of who has access to it, what price can you charge for it? Now, to give you another illustration of the difficulty with NAFTA with regard to the water, I propose to the Manitoba government that in order to offset cheap labor in Mexico, Manitoba could attract industry by offering cheap water and cheap power because hydroelectric power is very cheap and easy to produce. And, of course, that was fine until NAFTA came in. Once NAFTA came in, we couldn't do that because if we use the water as an enticement to industry at a cheap rate, we then had to sell that water to the U.S. or Mexico at the same price. So in other words, the trade idea sounds all very nice on the surface, or even underground, but the ramifications of it, the implications of it, are so far-reaching. I already made the argument about the two negotiators at the table. Now the other issue, Kim, is that people say, well, I've read the NAFTA Agreement, and it hardly mentions water. My experience is that it's the things that the politicians don't talk about that you need to worry about. The mechanisms for the transfer of water are built into the NAFTA agreement. For example, you're not likely to see river diversions, that there's environmental opposition to that kind of thing, and we've seen some of that with attempts to divert a river in North Dakota into the Red River, and that's crossing from one water basin into another, and there was complaints about pollution and mixing of species and so on. But what you will see, and I've been involved in this, in fact, about 20 years ago I was approached to do some climate studies on the potential for water pipelines. And, of course, pipelines are under the section in the NAFTA agreement of Boat Carrier. That's a general category that is covered under the NAFTA and says that you cannot block or impede any boat carrier. Now, that's an interesting issue with regard to the current dispute over the natural gas pipeline. You know
0: what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the Telecommunications Act in the United States that talks about that they can put up as many microwave stations, but they don't mention microwave. They talk about
1: telecommunications
0: technology, and they're answerable to nobody, even if it impairs their health. It's all the way it's
1: languaged. Yes, and by the way, pipelines to carry water... There have been lots of examples of them. I mean, the the Romans with their aqueducts were essentially that because they were a covered system. In a lot of rural areas across the uh, western North America, there are municipal water pipelines where a group of people get together and tap into a source and share the cost of distributing that water. What we're talking about, of course, is pipelines on a continental scale. That's really the mechanism that would be used. There are other schemes. For example, the state of Alaska has proposed a water pipeline running down the West Coast to provide water into Southern California. And, of course, they argue that this wouldn't cause any environmental damage because if a water pipeline breaks, it's not like oil or anything else. So that's been on the books for some time. The pipeline category is the mechanism by which you would transfer this water around the continent. The other portion of it is that in the NAFTA agreement, there is a section for commodities, Now, they define a commodity as, say, something that has a unit price, so that oil or gas, and that the NAFTA says that if Canadians have oil and gas at a certain price, they must then sell it to America at the same price, okay? And one of the great frustrations for Canadians is that so much of the oil and gas Americans are burning is coming from Canada, but your gasoline is at a lower rate than ours, I'm paying right now $1.32 a liter for gasoline, which works out. You can multiply that by four. So I'm paying over $5 a gallon for gasoline in a country that has some of the greatest oil reserves in the world. But this is the insanity of all of these things. So the commodities price says that if something has a unit price, then you must trade it across the border at the same price. You can't exploit another nation for that commodity. Well, water is rapidly becoming a commodity. I mentioned the thing about Winnipeg, where they're paying just over $2 for a 1,000 gallons. Well, it isn't going to be long before, and in fact, you're finding now in more and more cities where they're putting meters in, people are paying a unit price for their water. It's through these mechanisms that, as you mentioned, with regard to the communications, they put in these general categories that then can become a catch-all for whatever they want to actually do. Right.
0: So even if they're harmful, the public has no standing to deal with it at all. That's right. No standing.
1: Legally. No, because, no standing. because the agreement has been signed. And, of course, you see, one of the things with an agreement is that, and, and this is the issue with regard to the NAFTA, You know, when you say, well, we already had 80% free trade, then the question becomes, well, what was there left to negotiate about? I've learned this by being involved in negotiations myself over um, contracts uh, between faculty and the university. And we were setting up our first contract. And I got very good advice from a couple of people. They said, get everything you possibly can into that first contract because once you sign it, in order to change it, you're going to have to give up something. You're left with very little to bargain with after that. And so, of course, this is the issue. What was left to set the NAFTA in place if you already had 80% free trade? And so the answer is, of course, it was the water. That's how the two people at the table were both experts in North American water. And that's why I argue that that's really what it was all about.
0: Okay, I want to go back to this question I had, which is how and why was Canada separated from the USA in the first place?
1: Geography is the stage, and history is the play that's played out on that stage. You can study them separately, but you really don't understand the importance of them, and you certainly don't understand the importance of geography to history. For example, during the um, Israeli conflict with Egypt back in the 60s, it was interesting that all the reports were coming in about what were critical areas and who was controlling them, and they were talking about the Gita and Mitla passes, and that uh, Israel had seized control of those, And I'm thinking, I've heard those names before. Well, the answer is, of course, that they were considered critical control points in the Bible. And so... The geography doesn't change. You can change the pattern of how people move around the geography. For example, when we talk about trade when you look at the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal and how those totally change the, the pattern of movement because you change the geography. If you look at North America, the orientation of it geographically is north-south that you've got the eastern seaboard, and it's reflected, by the way, in the distribution of the aboriginal peoples, so you've got the uh, Indians on, in the in, um, northeastern U.S., and then the Mi'kmaq on the east coast of Canada stretching along that coast, Then you've got inland, the Mohawk on the Canadian side, the Iroquois on the, on the American side, the border cuts right through the middle of them, and then in the Plains Indians, and, and then you've got the uh, Rocky Mountain Indians, and then you've got the west coast, So the whole orientation of the continent is north-south, and yet suddenly you've got this boundary cutting right across the middle of the continent, essentially along the 49th parallel, and it just cuts across. Now, the most effective barriers, or boundaries, I should say, coincide with a natural physical barrier. And in fact, if you look at Europe, there are only four boundaries that are over 100 years old. And each of them is determined by a physical boundary. One of the most obvious ones, the Pyrenees between France and Spain. Switzerland, its boundaries existed for a hundred years for obvious geographic reasons. Now, obviously, with the Great Lakes where you put the boundary down the middle, you can say, well, the lake represents a physical barrier, and to some extent it does. Along the St. Lawrence is, is some logic to that. But then when you get into New England, it becomes very confused. But across the rest of the continent, there's this 49th parallel. Well, the reason for that boundary being there was partly, of course, that the northern part of the continent was occupied by the British... And they were determined to maintain it and did it reasonably successfully. But also, of course, a lot of people who were living in the United States that didn't want to become part of the U.S., they wanted to remain monarchists, moved to Canada. And we have a very large group of people in eastern Canada called the United Empire Loyalists. And these are the people that wanted to remain with monarchy. That was a political reason, but more important for most of the continent, that boundary marks the southern edge of huge drainage basins. Now, each river system has a drainage basin, and around the edge of that drainage basin is a watershed. A watershed is a height of land that separates water draining into one drainage basin from another drainage basin but you also have what are called divides. And a divide is a watershed, but it's on a continental scale. It's a watershed that separates water flowing from one ocean into another ocean. So the continental divide down the Rocky Mountains separates water flowing into the Pacific Ocean from water flowing into the Mississippi or the Gulf of Mexico. Well, one of the major divides, ironically, is across the flattest part of the continent, right across the middle, that separates water from the Mississippi-Missouri system flowing south from the waters through the Churchill and Nelson and, and all those river systems draining into the Arctic Ocean. That boundary between those two major divides was the boundary that was the land given to the Hudson Bay Company. So Charles II said, the Hudson Bay Company can have all the land that is drained by water flowing into the Arctic Ocean. Now, of course, when Canada was formed in 1870 and the U.S. were being formed, that boundary then became essentially the dividing line between the two countries. There was all sorts of interesting stories that came out of that. One story you'd love is about the weather conditions in central North America, the boundary between Saskatchewan and North Dakota, and there was a Norwegian family that settled there, and the Canadian survey crew came through in the 1870s to draw the boundary, the 49th parallel. They went to this Norwegian family and said, you're a mile south of the line, but I mean, if you want to move into Canada and become Canadians, you can do that. And they said, "No, oh, we're quite happy where we are. And that was fine. They drew the boundary. Well, it turned out they got the boundary out wrong. And so they came back four years later and moved the boundary south. And they went and knocked on the Norwegian family settlers' family's door and said, well, we've had to move the boundary. You're now uh, Canadians. But if you want to move <laughs> south into to the U.S., you could do that. The Norwegian family said, oh, this is terrible. Canadian surveyors were upset because they didn't want anybody not to want to live in Canada. They said, well, what's the problem? And the Norwegian family said, how are we ever going to stand those horrible Canadian winters? My God. Yeah. Hmm. Local, regional humor about boundaries. (laughs) But anyway, that's why the continent was divided on the basis of water. Now, of course, if you think about what I said earlier... Does that
0: mean I should move to Canada?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Tell me why. Tell me why.
0: uh, Tell us why we should move to Canada.
1: First of all, we've got the second largest country in the world with a population equal to California, if you were to list every country in the world and list what resources it would like to have, Canada's got them all. We are so resource-rich, it is unbelievable. One of the things that always amuses me, we've got Saskatchewan, a province, which is twice the size of Texas in area, and it is listed, uh, was until recently, listed in Canada as a have-not-province. That is that it was getting support, funding from other provinces, like Alberta, that is considered a half-province, in order to maintain itself. And it calls itself a have-not province, and and what amuses me about it is it's got more oil, more gas, more uranium, more water, more coal, more land, than virtually any other country in the world. But it's listed as a have-not province in Canada. Now, of course, its difficulty is that it's got only a million people in an area twice the size of Texas and trying to maintain a 20th century infrastructure. I mean, just imagine the taxes needed just for maintaining roads. Just to give you an example, when I was in search and rescue, we were flying in northern Canada, and the California family, the the brother, was flying in our aircraft, and he accused us by noon of just flying around in circles. And I said, "Well, how can you say that?" And he said, "Well, I haven't seen a village or road, nothing." And I said, "Well, we've covered ten thousand square miles." And he said, "Well, how can that be? I haven't seen any sign of humans at all." I said, "Welcome to Canada." That's and, interesting. Um, in fact, to to convince him, we had to fly back to the Slave River and south along it, and then along the Peace River back to Fort Chipewyan to uh, help him understand just the sheer size of this country. It is, of course, the resources and the Athabasca tar sands, which Americans have now become aware of, that is what's so advantageous to this country. Now, Canada has always been accused of being hewers of wood and haulers of water, and how prophetic is that with regard to the NAFTA agreement? And, and by the way, that idea about definition of a resource, how do you define a resource? The Athabasca tar sands are now seen as a huge resource because there's more oil in the Alberta tar sands than in all the Middle East combined. And by the way, there's twice as much tar sands under Saskatchewan as there is under Alberta. But when Alexander Mackenzie, the fur trader, went through the area back in the 19th century, he complained bitterly about this sandy black stuff that ruined his moccasins. It wasn't a resource for him. But, of course, now, because it's got a value, it suddenly becomes a resource.
0: So why did Canada sign NAFTA? Why did the negotiators sign NAFTA? It doesn't seem like it's a good deal for Canada.
1: No, it isn't a good deal for Canada. And part of that relates to the politics and who knows each other and who's in power at the time. We had a prime minister by the name of Brian Mulroney who was a very close friend of Ronald Reagan, and that nothing wrong with that necessarily. But uh, Mulroney had staked out his political career on getting a trade agreement with the U.S. And, of course, Canada is the United States' biggest trading partner. That was one of the great faux pas that one of your presidents made when he he didn't realize that. So for Mulroney, it was seen as a, a great benefit to have this trade agreement, But, of course, the problem is, when you're making trade agreements, you have to consider all the factors, as we've discussed, and you have to consider the difference in the sheer population numbers when you're looking at 300 million against 38 million, and when you have to look at the disparity in resources and power and everything else. And Simon Reisman, by the way, was a good friend with Mulroney and the people that were pushing the whole free trade agreement. So it was, again, these opportunities... That people, when they were younger, had these particular ideas and they got into power and seized the chance to put their ideas and views into place.
0: Now, do you actually think that water should be privatized? You personally?
1: No, I don't. And this is something we need to talk about in more detail. Because water, for a long time I've said it's going to be the resource issue of the 21st century. If we go back to Patrick Moynihan's comment about living without love, but not living. You can live without oil, but you can't live without water. Understood. Yeah.
0: You know, I've heard very prominent people say the same thing, but I have to tell you, Tim, that yep. those are also the people that have supported the privatization of water. So they create the scarcity. Even though there's not
1: a scarcity, they create
0: the scarcity.
1: I agree with you. And let me say that I'm not necessarily opposed to Canada selling water to the U.S., I understand. But you have to do it knowing all of the facts and all of the implications. The first is you need to know that it is a moral resource. And I can give you examples of wars have been fought over water.
0: You're talking about a moral resource. That's what you said.
1: Yes, it's okay. a moral resource. Indeed. It's a human right to have water. Right. And this is part of the argument that's being made by the people that are pushing for water as an, as an issue at the United Nations. I don't think it needs to go to that level, but that's part of the argument. And of course, the debate throughout history has been, is it a public good or should it be a private resource? And the Romans went through this argument. In fact, all of the issues that we're talking about today with regard to water were confronted by the Romans and in many ways dealt with by the Romans. And if you look at the number of Latin words that are related to water that we use today, like aqueduct and spigot, aquifer, these were all Roman terms. In fact, the basic models of pricing of water in terms of the amount of water can flow onto your property and the pressure of that water determines the price you pay. Well, the Romans were dealing with that because the amount of water you could get access to was how much could you afford to drill a hole in the aqueduct and where on the aqueduct did you drill the hole? If you could afford to drill a big hole at the bottom of the aqueduct, you could get a lot of water because it came out through a much larger hole under greater pressure. If you couldn't afford much, you had to drill a small hole at the top of the aqueduct. That's still the basis of municipal pricing of water today. What's the size of the pipe going into your house? house, and what's the water pressure that determines the volume of water that you can get access to? By the way, if I could change my name, I'd love to change my name to Sextus Frontinus. (laughs) What is that? Sextus Frontinus was appointed as the first water commissioner for Rome because the conflict over water got so great and so nasty that Caesar said, I'm taking control of the whole thing. This is going to be totally state-controlled, and I'm going to appoint a water commissioner to look after it. By the way, much of what the Romans dealt with are still in use. For example, if you bring water into a city, and the Romans were bringing enough water into Rome at the peak of the aqueducts, they had 300 miles of aqueducts bringing enough water for a billion people into Rome, That's fine, but then you've got to have distribution systems, you've got to determine who's going to pay for it, and of course they had many baths, bathing and water was absolutely the base of, of Roman society, but you've also got to get rid of the waste. So you've got to have a sewer system, so the Romans built the cloaca maxima, which is still functioning in Rome today as, as in one of the major sewer systems. And you also got to deal with sediment in the water supply, so they built silt traps, some of which are still functioning today. Now, what also came out of the Roman system, and this comes back to the NAFTA and our difference in water, is the laws with regard to water. Now, Roman law and the British law that adopted from Roman law is basically called riparian rights. A riparian, you see, is another Latin word for river. And the idea was that water was a public good, that you could have water on your property, but you didn't own it, but you had responsibilities to it. And those responsibilities was to maintain it at a certain quantity and quality. But you also had prescriptive rights, And prescriptive rights were that if somebody had no water, you had to provide access to that water across your land. If you go to the city of Winnipeg, as I talked about earlier, you drive around the streets along the river's edge, every once in a while, there's an access down to the river. That was there because prescriptive rights in the early days said people across the street have to be able to get to that river to get water. Okay. Now, when the United States was set up, they started with riparian and prescriptive rights. And many of the states still have that. But as the U.S. expanded west, and we talked earlier about Horace Greeley, uh, Go West, young man, it got drier and drier, a whole new legal philosophy came into being. It was called appropriative doctrine. And that was the idea that if you had water on your land, you owned that water. You had prior rights, and that's the term that you hear with regard to water. And the appropriative doctrine then became adopted across the U.S. And incidentally, by the way, another country that had shortage water supplies from the start that also adopted the appropriative doctrine, prior rights, was Australia. And Australia have all sorts of issues with regard to water and are learning a lot of lessons that we can learn, for example, in their irrigation systems and the Murray and Darling River systems. And we can talk about that later. So now what you've got is the United States is basically the appropriate or prior rights doctrine with regard to water, which means that you own the water. If your neighbor doesn't have any water, you don't have to give them access to it. And I used to show a cartoon to my Canadian students and say, you know, here's Bugs Bunny underneath the waterfall having a nice shower, and suddenly the water dries up into a trickle, and he goes up on top here, and here's this rotten John Lafitte's built-a-dam and blocked the water. Well, of course, you couldn't do that in Canada. But you could do it in the United States. And there's some very interesting ramifications of this, Kim, because, uh, for example...
0: Go ahead with your example, and then I want to tell you about how a British company bought out all the water rights in Sacramento.
1: Oh, yes. And, and it's been going on steadily in the And US, as much as I love the Brits,
0: this could be anybody from any country. It doesn't really of course. matter. It's the fact that you can corporatize this, that's,
1: take that's it, the, and seize it in an area. That's the issue. That's the issue, the idea of prior rights. So, in other words, if there's a dispute over water use, it is arbitrated by the courts, it's the legal system. And, of course, they apply the prior rights. They say, well, who's got prior rights claim? Before I give the, uh, the actual example, let's say that you have a, a stream flowing for your property in the United States. You can take the water out of that stream for your own personal use, but if your neighbor upstream of you decides, I'm going to irrigate tomatoes, and they start taking 95% of the water out of that stream, they then have established prior rights to that water. They have to provide you with the percentage you need just for your drinking water and so on, but you've effectively lost your rights to the water. Now, that created a situation in the U.S. that is endemic, and that is, if you don't use it, you lose it. Got it. This triggered the establishment of massive water projects in every state in the Union. And they were funded through Congress every January. Every state's water project came up for funding. No senator voted against any other senator's water project because this was a critical issue. Many of the projects were completely unnecessary. But it came about because of if you don't use it, you lose it.
0: Reminds me of sitting on property. Oh, exactly. It's like squatting, basically.
1: Exactly. Now, the example I was going to give was the Colorado River, of course, and the claims on that river It's a whole program in itself because you've taken so much water out of the river now that uh, hardly any of it gets to the ocean. And what water does cross into Mexico has to be desalinated in order to be of sufficient quality for the Mexicans to use it. But there was claims to water rights along the Colorado. I talked earlier about the Hopi and the Navajo and so on. A group of those people got together, went to the Supreme Court with aerial photographs and said, look, here we've got irrigation systems that we built a thousand years ago using water from the Colorado, so we've got prior rights claims. Well, boy, did that create a confusion. And so, of course, this is the difficulty with this prior rights. How do you establish it? And then how do you accommodate people that don't have access to water? When the U.S. changed to the prior rights or appropriative doctrine... Around 1900, the turn of the century, and of course you think about California with the Imperial Dam and all those projects there, the irrigation and so on, there was the International Joint Commission, which was a treaty between Canada and the U.S. about cross-boundary issues. They applied Canadian law to the water. Whenever there's a dispute nowadays about water, Canadian law is applied. But Canadian law is completely different. It's riparian law, not appropriative doctrine. And so whenever there's been a ruling on it, as there was with the project in North Dakota and into Manitoba, then they applied Canadian law, and all the Americans screamed and said, Oh, you sold us out. The Americans on the panel sold us out. And so what you've got are two countries, because the Americans changed to a pro-doctrine, Canadians didn't. We stuck with the riparian doctrine. So you've got a trade agreement between two countries over a resource on which their fundamental laws are philosophically completely different. And I don't know where that's going to end up in the future, what that does. And I can tell you how touchy an issue this is that a Manitoba Minister of Natural Resources by the name of Al Mackling had a public debate about water in the Red River and flows across the border and somebody said well you know the Americans don't want our water and Mackling said if they want it they'll just get their guns and come and get it he had to resign the next day and so you can see the problems it goes back to what I said at the beginning about trade agreements On the basis of simple trade, it all sounds very nice and easy, but the ramifications of it from a cultural, social, political, and philosophical basis are huge.
0: I want to thank you for taking your time to be with us today. There's so much more to talk about, and I want to invite you back. I'm sure you have way more to say about this.
1: I do, and particularly to look at it on an international basis. I touched on Israel briefly. And, of course, Israel is also in the forefront of so many of these issues because of its strategic problems. And, by the way, they're one of the world's biggest producers of drip irrigation systems, which is a, an outgrowth of that. But also to look at what's going on on the Nile River as Sudan and those countries start to take their share of the Nile River. In Iraq, the problems on the Tigris-Euphrates... Which, of course, is where the fertile crescent and agriculture began. So there's so many issues around the world that we could look at and talk about, and help people understand the world and understand that yeah, there's resources and trade helps humanity and gives us better life. But you better understand the the devils in the details. All.
0: The devil's always in the details. Always in
1: the details. Yes.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Tim Ball. You can reach him by going to drtimball.com, drtimball.com. And thank you so much for being with us today and really explaining the fullness of what we have to consider when it comes to water resources, water itself, geography, different type of legal agreements, NAFTA, and trade itself. Thanks again, Tim.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity, Kim.